Hello, Vass here. Thanks for joining us. What does the future hold for the people of Afghanistan in the wake of the US's withdrawal and the Taliban's return to power? A couple of weeks back, we assembled an expert panel to address the transformation of life in the country and the new status quo. They were Afghan politician and human rights activist Fazia Kufi, Sunday Times chief foreign correspondent Christina Lam, chief international correspondent for BBC World News, Lise Doucette, and New Yorker staff writer John Lee Anderson. Proceeds from the event were donated to the 30 Birds Foundation, which works to safeguard the future of Afghan schoolgirls. Please consider donating. You'll find them online. Hannah McInnes chaired the conversation. Fazio, if I could start with you. You were a member, I know, of the delegation negotiating peace with the Taliban uh, in Doha. Since they've come in, they've repeated often that they've changed, that this is a new page for them, as I think one official you know, even said in, in his words to you, John. Do you think there's anything in that at all or has all hope for any new page or, or dismissal of the past vanished in only these first months? Thank you, Hannah, for having me. And I'm delighted to be joined by such a wonderful wisdom, as you rightly say. Speaking about um, Taliban, probably some of those uh, who have explored uh, the opportunities outside Afghanistan, being in Doha or in Pakistan and being exposed to many international travels around the world from Norway to Moscow to China, they have probably uh, changed because their own daughters and their own family are now exposed to all these opportunities in the world. However, they seem to be silent or uh, less powerful, which indicates that the movement as a whole is still stick to the ideology and the beliefs that they had um, from you know, the time that they were controlling Afghanistan, 1996 to 2001. Because uh, you know the hope was that uh, that they have um, they, that they keep some of their promises. Um, because the first time when they came to Afghanistan in 1996, they actually took over from a, a system which was already in war. Uh, they took from uh, a system which was basically in chaos. Uh, a couple was divided between many uh, in war groups. Um, there was no uh, government as such. Um, now they have taken over from a, a government which. There were problems, but it was functioning. A society that has progressed so much, a nation that has seen so much. So the hope was that they will adjust themselves to the new Afghanistan. But unfortunately, over time, we see that they have kind of trapped into the same narrative that they have created for themselves when they first got to um, you know, existence, basically. Perhaps you could just explain to people, just before I move on, where you are now, your, your role and... Good because you've left, haven't you? I didn't want to leave. This was the one of the the the, the hard days and the difficult uh, decision that I had to make. Um, I left Afghanistan right on the uh, in the end of August, beginning of September. After being at home for almost two three weeks, uh, you know, Taliban outside my house, not allowing me to enjoy the liberty and movement that I wanted to be effective and efficient. Uh, in delivering what I wanted to be. So I decided to leave, not because I was afraid of my security situation, but because, you know, I wanted to really be relevant and efficient in raising, continuously raising the the voice of people. So I'm kind of moving around. Right now I'm in London, but of course in in different um, uh, countries, continuously raising the cause of Afghanistan. Because when I left first, my concern was that in a few months, the world will shift its focus from Afghanistan and its po- uh, problems and its complexities. Uh, but then I was trying to convince myself that this is such a multidimensional conflict and, and complex situation. The world should not do that and must not do that. The world must continue to stay engaged in a way or the other, at least with the people of Afghanistan. But now with with another awful um, war, uh, the Ukraine, I know that uh, Afghanistan is no longer making the headline. We know that these are two different uh, conflicts in nature. Uh, one thing in common between the two conflicts is the people are the, the victim of this, but they are two different. Can you imagine if, yet interlinked, and I will give you an example, can you imagine if Afghanistan was not controlled by Taliban today? Well, the situation in Ukraine was the same as it is now. 
I think Afghanistan security, one has to look at it from a bigger picture, uh, the growth of, you know, the regional power, it all, all has to do with the situation in Afghanistan. And so therefore, I think to move away from Afghanistan and to Yes, there is a, an awful war, but I think Afghanistan continue to be uh, important um, to be a safe and secure country for the world. There's so many important things there, which I, I want to return to, particularly you know, what the West should be doing. At least you've reported from Afghanistan for, I think, over 33 years, or is it 33 years? Um, and you, you say in your in your podcast, your reporting voice has changed a little bit in that time. Um, and I should say to people watching, A Wish for Afghanistan, which this podcast is just an extraordinary listen and uh, uh, so interviews with, with everyone from Hamid Karzai to um, Zalmay Kahalizad, who, who obviously negotiated the, the, draw, the pullout. But you've also sat down with Taliban officials. Do you believe that Afghanistan has any sort of hope for a future under this rule? Um, or in this already very turbulent history, d- does this feel like the darkest of ours, as, as you as you allude to? I think these are still early days for the Taliban. I think they are still focusing on what seemed to be ever more clear by the day, internal rivalries and the debacle and tragedy over what happened with the opening of high schools for girls demonstrated that in, with terrible clarity that so many of the Taliban that would fall into the category that Fauzia talked about, that who had been spending time outside the country, who recognized that Taliban rule where they were a pariah state in the 1990s, simply wouldn't work this time. It wasn't what they wanted. They kept telling us publicly and privately, they told diplomats, world leaders, they promised the UN that they would open girls' schools. Everyone believed them, most of all high school girls who went to classes that day. But there was a meeting in Kandahar just before, and then suddenly, as everyone here knows, they were told to go home, and we're still waiting for them to come up with, this time, the excuses, proper uniforms. I went listening to Fauzi. I remember, Fauzi, when you came back from one of your first sessions in Doha, and you talked about how that the Taliban had this pat answer that they gave to you. And I say pat answer because the words that you used kept appearing with other people who talked to the Taliban, that they, yes, women will be allowed to play any role they choose, except they cannot be the president. You remember when they told you that you're smiling and they even had this phrase, and I don't know where, because it's not a Taliban phrase, it's probably not even a word in Pashto for it. They said, women can choose their own life partner. And I'm thinking, where did where did that come up? That the Taliban suddenly are saying that Afghan women can choose their own life partner instead of being wed, you know, betrothed to someone from the moment even before they are born. And like Fauzi, I believe that they privately they are expressing their concerns. And even on social media, some of them will hint, no, 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 girls, don't worry, you will be going to school. But the longer this goes on, the more we are left thinking and fearing, in fact that the Taliban haven't changed much at all because it seems in recent weeks, hardly a week goes by without some new regulation. The latest one is one which doesn't seem of much consequence is that boys can no longer wear ties in school. And that is part of the school uniform and girls have to wear a hijab. Well, every Afghan, I don't think I, maybe one, I can count on one hand the number of Afghan women I know that don't wear a hijab in Afghanistan. So, it's very, very, and I think the international community now, which also had hopes, which talked to the Taliban leaders, hoping that they would try to steer a course that was different from the 1990s, acceptable to the majority of Afghans, believe their offers of amnesty. And I know many Afghans want to go home, whether they're former soldiers, women's activists, teachers, they do want to go home, but not if they're going to end up in, in prison or, like Fauzia said, in her weeks, be confined to their to their homes. So, but I think it's early days. The fight, the so-called, the snows are melting. The so-called fighting season is going to start, sadly. And we think we'll see for sure what is the power of this, the so-called Islamic State. What about those training camps for Al-Qaeda that we hear about along the Pakistan border? And what about this, what's now called the National Resistance Front? They say they're going to start attacking. The last thing Afghans need is another war. But there has to be pressure on the Taliban to say there will be no recognition and the last point I will make, even though it's gone out of the headlines, if you look closely at social media, you see the indications that the envoys who are charged with looking at the Afghan file 
are still working. They are still meeting. The one I looked at this morning was Hannah Neumann, who's an MEP, who made it absolutely clear, no recognition of the Taliban. She's in Kabul now until there is a recognition of the rights of all Afghans, including women. One of the things, I mean, of course, there's all the uh, external forces to, to worry about that you're just mentioning, but you began by talking about the internal rivalries when we're trying to make any judgment about what sort of rule the Taliban will will, uh, will have. And you said it's early days. But John, you wrote a recent piece, clearly the result of a great deal of um, on the ground interviews and, and research. And it feels very hard to know what to make of, of their insistence to you that they're no longer entangled with the past, that this is a new page, because within moments, you also write that these men who are in power, for example, in charge of security at Kabul airport is the former head of suicide bombers. People listening might not know, as you all do so well, how, how the Taliban government, what it's comprised of. And I just wonder if you could tell us that, because it, it's sort of quite surprising and quite doesn't install much hope and confidence when you hear what sort of men are in charge there now? That's a very good question. And I think that was the point. That was one of the points I was trying to explore by returning to Afghanistan and meeting as many of the of the new leaders as that I could, because I feel as someone who's gone, come and gone from Afghanistan for many years, I've never really had a handle on who they are. And part of the reason for that is that a good many of the leaders have never even been seen in public. They are completely secret uh, and secretive. And it's, it seems to be made up, and Liz and, and Fauzia and, and Christina know this much better than I do, but of various factions. You know, Liz spoke of the Kandahari faction, and then there are the Haqqani is a network that somehow were the interfaces between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And they are the clan that have more or less taken over Kabul. And there seems to be tensions between them and the Kandahari faction, so to speak. This is very simplistic and even a cartoonish explanation. But the more one tries to find out who's in charge of what and what the future will be and and what these policy pronouncements mean, you start to come up against these sort of shadowy areas where there's no real answers for it. So you meet one of the diplomats, the Taliban diplomats, fellows, all men, of course, who Fauzia would have met in in Doha and who, you know, uh, the UN ambassador designate, for instance. And, you know, they're very available in Kabul and they speak good English and a few other languages. And they're the ones who've you know, they're almost metropolitan compared to the Taliban in their first genesis back in the 90s. These are people who understand how Westerners think and what they want to hear. And when I was there, I met with them, but also pushed and tried to meet with some of the more shadowy figures. And the, when I got to them, I'm talking about people in the security arena with ill-defined posts, one of the Haqqanis, for instance, or the man in charge of the airport who was a suicide bomber, another former suicide brigade commander in charge of security just outside of Kabul. I met a number of these people. They tended to talk in an almost biblical kind of language. The world was divided into black and white. They gave the same kind of glib assurances that, you know, we intend to be tolerant. We are tolerant. We we want to have a fair society, you know. Uh, they would all tend to address the issue of women's rights because they're aware that that was top of the agenda uh, for Westerners. They seem to have uh, all had the same briefing book. But the more one pushed them on issues of uh, particularly of justice, implementation of justice, or their intentions towards ethnic groups, uh, I would find them, they, their backs, they, they would get their backs up. They would become gruff. They would, not, um, they would not want to continue talking. And that even happened with the diplomats. One of the things I pushed them all on was their willingness to acknowledge past excesses as a means of, since they are so shadowy, um, and since the true leaders are people who never appear in public or simply won't sit down with journalists, I was trying to get a sense of their... Uh, of their judgment, of their of their willingness to acknowledge past successes. Uh, a few really pressed would elusively acknowledge that they had made mistakes in the past, but they, when, when I pressed them on it, 
such as massacres of Shiites or Hazaras, such as the brutality displayed towards women, the shooting and, and, and stoning of women in the past, they would become irritated. In, in one of the cases, the bodyguard of the former suicide commander had a gun uh, throughout our interview and his finger on the trigger during a 40-minute interview with his eyes on me. That didn't make for a comfortable interview, and it made me feel as though I was still dealing with an insurgent commander. Uh, and these were people who had rarely ever met anybody from the outside world and who, in fact, until a couple of, you know, a couple of months earlier, had been planning their only relationship with the capital was, in fact, sending suicide bombers in to blow themselves up in the capital. And now they were the administrators. So it made for a very surreal uh, atmosphere. But I tried to be, as I, I was trying to be fair, my question for all of them, really, and what I wanted to come away with a judgment of was, is this a new Taliban? Uh, can they be taken at their word? And I came away with a nonplussed. I came away feeling that I did not know the Taliban, that as much as I had all the reporting I had done and the relatively good access I had didn't lead me any closer to the truth. And that under the surface, a lot of things were happening. And that the blithe assurances I was being given simply wouldn't wash in any other country in the world from a from an equi- person in an equivalent leadership position. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I could not go and, and safely say, this is Taliban 2.0, they are warm and fuzzy. These are Smurfs, and they recognize what they were before. No. And so, so I came away with a, a sinking feeling, frankly, and one that I've tried to you know, hold in abeyance. But unfortunately, much as Liz was pointing out, you know, these, these latest edicts show that the, the hardliners, the conservatives, the oscurantists have the hegemony over the others, it seems. Christina, I mean, in a way, we could talk for so much longer about the characters and, and, uh, and the sort of Taliban, but let's move perhaps to um, the kind of humanitarian crisis that you reported on, um, you know, you've continued to, but a report from you from January, um, you said as a foreign correspondent for the past 35 years, uh, you've seen a lot of famine, disease and death, but never anything of this magnitude. And the stories are, are almost too much to, to read about that that you share in that. I mean, that's a, that's a big statement. Nothing of this magnitude in all the time that you've reported on disaster zones. Yeah, well, thanks for having me here and great to share a platform with some old friends and um, uh, lovely to see Fazia. Uh, so, um, and also just really good because as we were saying before this started, people don't seem to focus very much on more than one thing and Afghanistan has not gone away as I think has become clear from what the others have been saying and indeed the Taliban are taking advantage, I think, of the fact that um, attention isn't on Afghanistan to, to start doing more uh, Taliban-like things. Um, so uh, when I was there in January and February, I was absolutely horrified at the humanitarian situation. People, I found, were completely desperate. And whereas the previous time I'd been there, which was September, October, People were selling their belongings on the streets to try and raise money for food. Now they were actually selling their organs and they were selling kidneys and they were selling their children. And this wasn't one or two cases. I mean, unfortunately, child uh, people do have sold children in Afghanistan for a long time. But this was widespread. And the problem, it seems to me, and I, that's why I wrote, I've never seen anything quite like it, that um, we've all covered like famines and um, floods and wars. And, but this was like everything at once. This is the worst drought in 40 years, a country that suffered 40 years of conflict and then the, a complete economic implosion, which is is man-made, you know, and the moment that the uh, foreign troops all poured out at the end of August, um, all of the foreign organizations, foreign aid, without the banking system has been brought to almost to a, a halt. The reserves have been frozen. 
And so normally in, in a bad situation, people have some alternative, like your, your harvest fails, you try and get work on a construction site or day work doing something. There's no options for people there now. There's nothing. And it wasn't just the poorest people that I was finding this. It was also middle class people who had had pretty comfortable lives. So in one family, for example, the father had worked for the Human Rights uh, Commission, which obviously has been closed down. His son was a prosecutor in the interior ministry his daughter-in-law was the manager of a translation agency they all had jobs that were bringing in pretty decent income and overnight in late august they all lost their jobs i mean you can't imagine preparing for a scenario like that so they went from being a family that had it you know used to go out to restaurants and picnics and never having to worry much and they'd actually just recently borrowed quite a lot of money to pay for a wedding suddenly they found themselves with zero income and this big debt and was really in a desperate situation the day that i went there they had a cauliflower for the whole day to eat now, between a, a big family of people. Then you have these uh, much poorer families who uh, were selling their children. One of the families I went to had sold their eight-year-old daughter, Fatima. The morning I went there, they tried to sell a three-month-old baby as well. And they, they were an extended family of 30 people living together. And they were living on eight pieces of bread a day between all of them. And there was no tea, no heating, uh, and it was bitterly cold. And it was just absolutely, completely desperate. And it, it was like that in place after place. And this was in Kabul, actually, when you go into rural areas and, uh, and even worse. So I just found it heartbreaking. And I feel quite strongly, I'm, of course, we mustn't recognize the Taliban and all the things that they're doing. But I feel like we're punishing the Afghan people by withholding aid, by withhold, freezing the assets, not allowing the banking system to operate because there's no way okay some aid is going in now and but it's a small amount and it won't turn around this situation people need jobs the economy needs to start working again and it won't until we stop keeping the assets frozen and allow the banking system to operate and it's heartbreaking and sort of so interesting to you know hear you say that you, you say um, in that piece. And in fact, Fauzi, I'm really interested to hear from you on on this idea of you know the West having this conf- feeling conflicted about sending aid to the Taliban, given obviously what they stand for and what they've done. But at the same time, it's you know if, if we're going to take perhaps one thing the Taliban says you know, at face value, they say the effect of the suspension of aid all for those things will only hurt the people the international community supposedly care about the most, the people who, who Christine is t- talking about. I mean, uh, let's remember that Afghanistan, before the 15th of August, uh, the, the poverty rate was already 55 or above, uh, according to the uh, World Bank report. So this was um, a country in in poverty and uh, predominantly because of the corruption and war and not uh, utilizing the the resources Afghanistan has. It's such a, I mean, I don't have to speak here about what, how Afghanistan is in front of the people who have almost, you know, spent, I think, half of their lives in Afghanistan. But it is a country full of resources. It can be a a potential, uh, you know, economical hub between Central and South Asia. So there are all the opportunities that could have been used, but because of the war, it was not used. Now, Taliban are using this humanitarian catastrophe to survive, basically. So it's a very complex situation. Humanitarian aid actually benefited the rebel group in Palestine, in Syria, in any in-conflict country, and Taliban know how to use this. I think above um, the humanitarian crisis, there is a political crisis. There is a power which is not legitimate in the eyes of people. It's not legitimate in the international eyes. It continues to uh, suppress uh, the population and uh, take Afghanistan years back to what it was. Nowhere in the world, uh, Muslim, non-Muslim countries, women are deprived of their basic rights, but women rights and education 
closure of education is not the only problem. So for instance, if tomorrow the schools open, does not mean that Afghanistan is a, a rosy situation and there is no other problems. So I think we have to look at the bigger picture of a political crisis. I think Taliban will lean towards this China, Russia kind of block of East. And that's why with the Ukraine conflict, their diplomats was, um, you know, uh, re- the agreement was received in, in Moscow. Lately, we know that there have been some Chinese business people who have traveled to Afghanistan to invest on on uh, resources, on on mines and resources uh, of Afghanistan. So I think that will make um, the life of Afghan people even worse because on one hand, you have humanitarian crisis. On the other hand, you have a human rights crisis. In the absence of EU, um, US and other countries that could monitor the situation of human rights, they will make it worse. So yes, humanitarian crisis is there. People have lost jobs and on daily basis, like Christina said, I'm in contact with people who dignified, highly educated people, more than 35 uh, million population. Now, many uh, reports say 10 million, 12 million, 16 million. I think the whole population is in a, a, you know, a dire need of uh, jobs and economic opportunities. I'm in contact with people highly educated. They ask me to help them with $10, which is heartbreaking. I mean, these are people with dignity with whom I have worked. Now they want $10 for their children's uh, to be fed during the Ramad- uh, holy month of Ramadan, especially is heartbreaking. So it's a very complex situation. And therefore, I think we have to really tackle the political crisis. And I think the world still has the leverage to use over Taliban and the neighboring countries, the four neighboring countries, the Middle East countries, the immediate neighbors of Afghanistan to pursue Taliban for a political dialogue. Because as uh, Lise said, um, you know, with spring, it has always been offensive season. And we know that uh, not that the more Taliban um, offensive operations continue to arrest people who were in the army before. We know that New York Times, for instance, recently released an investigative report, which obviously did not cover all the, you know, the killing and murders that we know. Uh, We are in touch with people. But uh, to some extent, it did cover, uh, indicates how uh, hard the life of the former uh, security forces are. This already is a platform for them to join Daesh. Um, So I think the narrative Taliban would like to present to the world is to work with us. Otherwise, Daesh is the alternative is a wrong narrative because the more you uh, empowered Taliban are in terms of trying to take people the hostage and commit human rights violation, more people will join, especially from the former security forces will join the military extremists in this case, either Taliban, but also, as um, Lee said, the uh, resistance, uh, the, the resistant forces, and therefore there will be a, a violence, there will be war, which uh, already we are in our knees. I mean, I can't even think of having a country which from one war to another, one conflict to another. I mean, Hannah, it's just heartbreaking. I'm kind of, I have lost patience. I have lost everything. I'm a human being with no identity, no country. Unlike me, thousands of people are like this. And those who are in Afghanistan also have the same feeling. They feel that they don't have a country. They don't have identity, that they're so distant and stranger to everything that's going on because, you know, they're just being ruled by Ghana. And John mentioned about the story. In fact, one of the reasons I decided to leave was exactly the same reason. I was under house arrest, but... I could see that in the evening, unwanted group of people, Taliban from my area, will enter my house with, you know, bodyguards, uh, finger, a point, a bullet pointing towards me, and they will sit there for hours, talk about from A to Z, uh, you know, the fact that why they became Taliban. And these were people that I, for some of them, I actually tried to help when they were not Taliban. And now they come and they teach me Islam. They didn't even go to school. They teach me Islam and they teach me how things were wrong before. They tried to convince me that they that we were wrong. So these were like, this This is now norm in Afghanistan. We should not really let discrimination become a norm in Afghanistan. So therefore, I think all of us have a moral, a moral responsibility to pursue a meaningful political dialogue and make Taliban accept that they are not the military winner, that they came to Kabul because the former president left Afghanistan. Yes, they won many places, but they wouldn't be able to enter Kabul if there was a strong you know, leader that would like, for instance, Ukraine that would resist and stand. I mean, 
so so glad that um, you know we have your voice here to to hear all of that from. And uh, as I say, so much more to to hear from you. But in terms of that moral obligation and responsibility, and and you know you say a lot of you know what's happening in Ukraine so much around the world kind of comes back to Afghanistan and I'm interested in what this international community what debt we have I mean Lisa mentioned your podcast and there's a a really um, powerful moment where you're talking to um, Fatima Gayani and she says it's never been up to Afghans I didn't choose the Cold War don't come now and think I'm a stupid Afghan and will believe whatever you tell me we were together in this thing. You owe it to me. You owe it to my country. You owe it to us to bring us to a place where I don't need you anymore. And I, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that sort of f- feeling, which I think, you know, Fazia is saying too, that the West owes them this help. They were partners in this post 9-11 evolution of Afghanistan. And I think all of us on this call and many people who are, are listening in, and Fauzia already mentioned it, mistakes were made. Mistakes were made by all sides, by the political class, by the security forces, by the Western militaries, as well as diplomats. The West went in, not really understanding Afghanistan, but believing that they did. And mistakes were made year, year in, year out. And some of those mistakes led to the rise of the Taliban, although Neighbors, of course, played their role as they always do in in Afghan wars. And it's interesting, you know, watching Ukraine now because the Ukrainians are fighting with weapons provided by the West in a few years of training by NATO armies, including Britain and Canada and the United States. And the trainers left as soon as uh, Russia invaded. But I often think, well, there's been a few years since 2014 of NATO engagement, uh, intensified NATO engagement in Ukraine. But the engagement in Afghanistan is much longer, much more personal. Many, many strong friendships were formed and expectations were created, whether we like it or not, that the international community in pushing to educate a whole new generation and that generation which has been educated, the most educated and connected generation in Afghan history is one of the success stories of Afghanistan. For all of the girls, not all girls got to school, but certainly millions did. And now they're suddenly finding that they're staying at home. I do believe the West has a moral obligation to say, you know, that whole expression of 9-11, shoulder to shoulder, we are with you for the long run. And the long run is still running. And I think even now, as the world looks more to Ukraine in terms of welcoming Ukrainian refugees, you know, there are thousands and thousands of Afghans either stuck in third countries and camps and or stuck in Afghanistan who've been promised refuge. Now, obviously, not everyone in Afghanistan can get refuge in another country. It's simply not possible, even though there are many, many, many who believe that they should uh, have refuge. But this relationship didn't end with the rise of the Taliban. And I think there are still, I think there are many as individuals who still believe that profoundly. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, John, I mean, everybody's nodding, but John, I, I think you've got something to add. To oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I, I so, in such a heartfelt way, agree with what, what Fauzia and Lise have said, and and Christina, too. It's desperate, the, the situation there. I do feel that the West, in all of these countries that participated in the war against the Taliban and, and the reconstruction of the country, or the attempts to, after 9-11, have a moral obligation with the Afghans. I, I, I didn't meet an Afghan in the country who was not a Taliban, who didn't want to leave. It's f- truly desperate. I've never been to a country where so many simply want, so many people simply want to go. And, and like Fauzia, they will be people without a country afterwards. It's a terrible situation. And sanctions, it's, it's you know, it's... Um, 
it's a devil's soup. It's it's difficult. There's not a country I know where the United States, my country of origin, you know, which dispenses sanctions like once upon a time rich people dispensed alms to beggars. It's in lieu of a of a well thought out muscular policy. Very often, sanctions are what we do, and. When you go to Afghanistan today, there are no Westerners left. There are no embassies. There are no Americans or Brits or Danes or other people there able to, to be the interface between Afghanistan, the Taliban, and the rest of the world. In the face of sanctions, there's a vacuum of influence. There has to be creative thinking, and I know there are people at it, um, you know, these negotiators, these people you you were talking about before who are even now meeting and so on, there is an effort underway to try to figure out how to get humanitarian aid to the country and bypass the Taliban. There's almost no way for that to truly happen. But simply cutting off the entire country is not a policy. It's not a policy initiative. There has to be a way for the West to continue to help the Afghans fulfill its moral obligations and like Fauzia said, establish a, a political dialogue that is creative, that's ongoing, and that's high profile, that's, that's, that's serious, not just simply displaced by the next crisis, Ukraine or whichever, in order to bring the Taliban forward and to, to bring the country back to some kind of modicum of, you know, a tolerable level of, of, of living for the people there. We have abdicated, I feel, our responsibility. We saw it in those planes leaving the country in that three-week period with the kids falling off. This was, a, this was sh shameful. It was truly shameful for the United States to leave in the way it did. All of the people that were left behind, the ones that didn't get on those planes, you know, everybody that has, has a relationship with Afghanistan, I don't even need to ask Christine or Lise, I'm sure, everyone who knows Afghans and has spent time there, have been picking up the slack for what the U.S. government didn't do when it ended its evacuation flights after three weeks. Hundreds and hundreds of people have on their own informally, without looking for you know uh, news about it, helping to get people out. So we're all very aware of how big that uh, vacuum of influence is now and the abdication of responsibility that was formally fulfilled by the NATO countries and European Union and the others. There needs to be engagement. It needs to be ongoing. Just as Lee said, it, ha it has to be front and center alongside Ukraine. And as Fauzi said in the beginning, there probably would not have been a Ukraine invasion by Putin in quite the way he's done it if there hadn't been this implosion by the West and the NATO powers and the United States in Afghanistan. You know, uh, I, I think uh, I'm not alone in thinking that that when Putin saw the U.S. against the ropes, apparently on wrong footed and seemingly in a moment of defeat, decided to move his pawns on the chessboard. So they are related and they, they need to be we need to be aware of that and cognizant of it. And, and I think, you know, our politicians need to be, continue to be pressured about it. It's not enough to have brought over a few people. And, and having dumped them, including in places like Ukraine. God Almighty, there were Afghans who were dumped in Ukraine and then had to flee from there. So it's... Um, it, it, I'm going to have to, just because I'm, I momentarily need to um, get questions from the audience, but Christina, I mean, you you um, sort of kicked off that discussion of, of you know, the mm -hmm. West and, and, and the international community, I suppose, just not doing nearly enough in the face of this. But we then moved on. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about where that kind of creative thinking to sort of fill the vacuum of, of abdicated responsibility that, that John talks about kind of comes from. I, I suppose if there's any note of hope, we'd also want to hear it. Well, I don't know about hope. I, I mean, literally, while we're speaking, I just got a message from a woman in, in Helmand saying my life is totally in danger and I need your urgent support and help. Taliban are kidnapping many women. They have tried many times to kidnap or killing me. I mean, this is, what, eight months after they took over. I think all of us have been getting messages like this. Um, people are just so terrified. And, 
you know, not only I agree, I think we're all agreeing with each other, but I, not only I agree with John about the abdication of responsibility by the West, but you also have to wonder, you know, all that money that was spent there, that we failed to create anything sustainable in terms of a health system or people, 96% of people don't have enough to eat, according to the United Nations in Afghanistan today. And yet, you know, a trillion dollars was supposed to have been spent in Afghanistan. And I have to say, I met one of the people I interviewed was the head of uh, the refugee directorate for Kabul, the internally displaced people who was a Taliban who had been in Guantanamo. And he said to me, I haven't been in Kabul for 20 years. I was in Guantanamo. I came now. And he said to me, I expected to come to a place I heard about all this money that was spent and everything. I expected to come to sort of glittering uh, place on a hill, you know, that everything would work well. And he said, it doesn't look, you know, it just is a mess. And where did all the money go? And actually, it was quite hard to, you know, to disagree. You, I mean, the, particularly the health system, which was supposed to be one of the successes. And now you look at it and... Um, it's collapsed completely without with the Westerners going. And uh, basically, you know, what they did was contract out the running of health to different people. They didn't actually create a sustainable system. And of course, an awful lot of um, skilled people have left. Um, so uh, it's very hard to, to be hopeful. Um, and I don't, I mean, the, the problem is that to me, there doesn't really seem to be any alternative. The, the Taliban are there, there and there are no good guys in this. You know, when you talk to people about what possible alternative, everyone I spoke to actually are more critical of the Ghani government than they are of the Taliban. <laughs> and or the last thing they want is more warlords coming back or more fighting. So actually, uh, I have to say, most people I spoke to said they thought the answer was having the Taliban working with other people and creating some more inclusive government, uh, which is something, you know, that, that the West, they do have this leverage of the Taliban needing money. And um, that is something that they could be trying to, to pressure more. And if I see one more picture, just one last thing of, male diplomats going to visit the Taliban without women present, I will scream because it just is such a bad signal. I think every foreign delegation that goes to visit the Taliban should have women running it, ideally, but certainly equal numbers to the men. Uh, can, I, can I ask you, it's just um, what may seem like a, a sort of, I, I suppose, a trivial question, but many of us, you know, it, it's similar with Ukraine. You have all done the most extraordinary things to sort of bring the eyes of the world to these um, sort of devastating stories. But a lot of people feel this extremely useless looking on. Um, I mean, Lisa, if I might just ask you, as I say, it might feel like a, a very stupid question, but, you know, is there anything that people on individual levels, you know, can do for, for, to have any agency in change? You know, first of all, let me just speak for all of us. And, you know, Fauzi, our, our hearts go out to you that, you know, there were so much expectations. Not only did we bring, raise the expectations of a whole generation of young girls and boys who came of age during the international engagement, but also Afghan politicians, women activists, you know, they thought that they had their partners in the West who would be staying with them, you know, through thick or thin. So, you know, we all feel for you. And I, I think... On behalf of Afghans, we can't lose hope. Afghans like to say hope is the last thing that should be lost. And admittedly, many Afghans have lost hope. That's why they've left. But probably in their hearts of hearts, they still believe that someday they will go home. And it's a home in a country that they will be able to recognize and feel that they belong there. There are so many ways that that people can help, I think. First of all, is to continue to read about Afghanistan, to, if you can, to, there's so many the Afghans who are now helping to distribute food. First of all, people need to eat. And there are so many, both in Afghan NGOs, international ones, but individual Afghans who are just organizing distribution for, for Afghans. I mean, that is a way to get involved. I mean, speak to your members of parliament. Unfortunately, we're speaking on a day where there's a new 
system of sending people to Rwanda, which is coming into effect. So that's a whole other, yeah, that's a whole other thing. And but things like what Christina said, I know it's symbolic, but symbols matter as much as substance to, to badger people to say, stop sending all men when you send a delegation, whether it's a delegation of activists or because the Taliban always love to meet people to say, wow, look at us, we're changing or we're meeting this delegation. That you know, every delegation should have women as much as men to show that they're this isn't this it is normal now in the year 2020, 2022, that there's men and women should play roles in public space and should have their rights protected in in private spaces as well. Yeah, thank you so much. That's a, a great answer. I'm gonna um uh, just move to an o- audience question. Uh, thank you all for your presentations that somebody says, um, albeit reinforcing our worst fears, but important to be reminded. Um, just wondering if there are any NGOs still able to operate um, and if any are focused um, on support for teaching girls. Fa- Fazia, perhaps I can put that to you. Yeah, um, there are a lot of NGOs that uh, operate. In fact, uh, one of the alternatives that uh, when it comes to sending humanitarian aid is to these NGOs and supporting uh, the the communities, the public. This is what we did when the Taliban were in power in 1996 to 2001. We we worked with NGOs. I personally worked with NGOs and with UN, for instance, and there were NGOs that were, um, uh, you know, all over Afghanistan, um, supported by different donors. um, So that when the Taliban see that their NGOs are delivering, that they are there, that people are happy with NGOs, they try to learn. We need to present good role models for them to see that things are things could be different, things could change in a better way. So NGOs are there. In fact, we support an organization that provides six, uh, girls education for 600 girls. Uh, which is interesting because the Taliban don't allow girls to go to school, but we now they're going to graduate. So people will always find ways to maneuver um, for a better future. I think Afghans have always been a hopeful uh, population. I remember during the first round of Taliban, I was in Kabul all my life and with the hope that I will go back to Kabul soon, inshallah. I was in Kabul looking at the window of, uh, you know, uh, Kabul streets from window of my house. I could hardly see a car passing by window in five minutes because there was no life, basically. Even then, people were hopeful. Now, of course, there is technology, people connected, there is media, people are connected with the world. So there is a hope. There is a hope. We just not have to, like Taliban, I think, are one reality of Afghanistan. They're not all the reality. Uh, many um, surveys indicate that Taliban apparently have between 10 to 15 percent popularity in the Afghan society. That's very, very little to uh, to run a country that has the, uh, changed so much. So I think the uh, I'm not suggesting that there should be another force to um, delete Taliban or erase them from the power. What I'm suggesting is that as a small reality, they need to uh, understand the fact that Afghanistan is a diverse country. As John said, they are very uh, um, sensitive towards some realities of Afghanistan. They need to accept coexistence and refer to the people, include people in the power. Because if you look at other Muslim countries, including the country that was hosting negotiation for Taliban, Qatar, they have 15% more girls into university and, and, and schools than boys. They have lately started to have uh, parliamentary elections, for instance. Indonesia, no country in the world has that level of, you know, oppressive measures as Taliban. And when I was negotiating with them, I asked them when they were like insisting on Islamic government, Islamic government um, again and again. And I was like, what is your definition of Islamic government? What kind of Islamic government you want? Because there is different models of Islamic government. A government could be Islamic Republic, could be Islamic Emirate, could be Islamic like parliamentary system. What is your definition? They unfortunately didn't know what is their definition definition of like what what kind of an Islamic government they want. So I think they need to respect the reality of Afghanistan, come for a political dialogue, and the world must use its leverage before it's too late. I mean, I last year, I wrote an op-ed and I warned the world to continue to stay engaged in Afghanistan before it's too late and you fail to Afghanistan. As Liz said, I think everyone failed to Afghanistan, especially to the women of Afghanistan. Now, again, I mean, before it's too late and Afghanistan once again is a battlefield of the superpowers, uh, we need to really save and rescue the people of Afghanistan. And the way is a political dialogue where a government is established that is accountable to the people. There are 
problems, I agree, uh, with health, with education, but that is an indication of a functioning society, right? Where people complain about this. It is an indication of a functioning society before the Taliban. There were problems. I'm not saying I was a critic of government for 20 years. I was a political critic of the government, political opposition for what, uh, you know, the, the opportunities that we missed and not use it properly. But now I think we're at the age of losing everything, including our identity. I mean, the things that they have stopped is one is hurting my heart from one angle. But the fact that they are not allowing us to celebrate Nowruz, which is part of our identity, is attacking to our identity. It is not an Afghanistan that I have fought for. It is not an Afghanistan that my daughters dreamed for. And therefore, I think, join us in making our dreams come true. And we all, as I said before, we all have a, uh, an obligation to that. The one thing I would say is that, and maybe that people are getting that idea, that the country has changed a lot, right? It, I mean, it's a very different Afghanistan to when the Taliban were in power before. It is a very young population, 70% under the age of 30. They've all grown up with smartphones. It's a country completely connected to the rest of the world. You know, people know a different kind of life so I I still think and that's the one hope I cling to very difficult for the Taliban to behave in the way that they did when they were in power before it's really interesting to me that you've all brought up you know it was one of the first things that you said Lise of social media Fauzi you've talked about social media you say they all have smartphones I mean so that is you know we look, we look at Russia kind of shutting down Mm-hmm. Um, social media but it doesn't see you don't see that happening do you still see sort of freedom of you know journalism and, and people being able to r- report on social media go being the thing that will most s- sort of change the path I mean John yes I mean the Taliban have been shutting down plenty of social media platforms and local journalism but it's not a monolithic uh, regime yet there is still room to maneuver I think as as everyone is pointing out. And so uh, engagement on every level is is obviously key here. And and yes, the Afghans are, they've always been an incredibly irrepressible, uh, independent-minded and enthusiastic people. And you see that with their young people today. And as uh, uh, Christina said, it's a you know extraordinary number of young people today. The average age is 18. So um, there is still hope there. It's not a monolithic country like Putin's Russia yet. Um, There are chinks in the armor and there are ways for the Afghans still to communicate with us and for us to communicate with them. And it's a matter of engagement. Yes. Well, very sadly for me, the hour is over. perhaps a little bit um, sentimental, but I've been lucky enough to do a lot of um, events at the How To Academy and I don't think I've really ever felt such a a privilege as as doing this one and I think everyone watching will completely agree. Thank you all so very much for for doing this um, and and a lot to, to think about and hopefully, you know, also to act on. Thank you so much and thank you everyone for signing in. This episode of the podcast was presented by Hannah McInnes and featured Farsi Akufi, Christina Lamb, Lise Doucette and John Lee Anderson. It was produced by Dana Outcult, and she and I are the executive producers of this series. Our editor is John Doughty. I'm That's Krista Dulu. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>